This will actually be our last pass through James chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, turn there. And uh, we're, we've got just two verses, and yet in these two verses, I hope we have enough time. <laughs> because James is so full of the wisdom and truth of God's word that really requires meditation and a, a slow pace to it. And I think the entire conversation that James is having with anyone who hears this word requires you to consume it slowly. We're going to talk about that this morning, but uh, read these two verses with me, and then I'm going to lead off with a question for you, and I just want, I want you to answer it honestly. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone among you thinks he or she is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself spotted from the world. Another uh, moment where the book of James is going to really put something before us that I hope will challenge us in one of those painful, truthful, glorious ways. So the question I lead off with is, how many of you think you're religious? And if you're, if you're like first service, just a show of hands, how many of you are like religious people, would you say this morning? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough survey. This is exactly what happened in, in first service. Nobody here is religious, not one hand. <laughs> you're all at church singing songs with Bibles and notebooks. And you're like, no, not me. I'm not religious. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. You're like, I believe in relationship, not religion. It's a very good way to, to think about the pursuit of God that is freed from some of the stereotypical nonsense of religion. In fact, the word this morning says there is some religion that is absolutely useless. And I think we all feel that at times. We all sense that criticism for the non-religious world. And we think, okay, I don't want to be religious. But then James goes on to say, but the good religion, the pure and undefiled religion. And so I hope that as we get towards the end of the sermon, all of our hands would eventually raise and say, we want that in our lives. We want to be people who are doing what God has called us to do. Um, Let's define the term just for a second, and then much like our series through the book of James, we're going to have to take one step back before we take a couple forward. Uh, And and before I, I share this with you, I'll say, over the last couple months, many of you have asked for specific quotes that I've shared or specific passages of scripture. So I've actually just shared all of my little notes that I use with the projection team this morning. So I'm just going to let you see them. And if you're a visual learner, I hope this helps you. If you're not a visual learner, then do not visualize any of this. Let's work on what James is maybe getting at with this word religion that none of us raised our hands for. Uh, Religion, working definition, behavior that flows that follows a system of beliefs and convictions. This is uh, worthy to kind of think about what James is getting at because in this sense of the word, James is actually talking to people who are desiring to be religious. He's not warning people against the stereotypical dangers of religion. Remember, as we take a step back, what we talked about last week was this idea that James says, listen, Here's the word of God. It can save your souls. It can bless your life, but only if you do it. If you're a hearer of the word, but not a doer, you're foolish. You're like looking in a mirror and not remembering who you are. So now James is having almost one of those rhetorical conversations with the audience that he's writing to, because someone might say, maybe that someone is you from last week. I do the word. 
I, I listen to the sermon, I open the word, and I do my devotional in the morning, and I, and I receive it with gladness, and I am a doer of the word. And what James is saying is, in that way, this is your religious response. You say you're religious. You're doing things according to the word. That is the religion that James is getting at. And I hope all of us have a desire to be working what we believe to have a system of beliefs that is followed by a, a system of character, conviction, and action. This is the sense of religion that James is getting at. Uh, we'll have to, again, unpack the word as we get farther into the book, because he'll say faith without works is dead. Same concept. It's belief without the corresponding action is not actually a belief that you hold very dearly. And so James is saying this morning, in response to anyone who said last week, don't worry, preacher. I listen to the word and I do the word. What he's saying is, some of you think that. Some of you think that you listen and you do, but there's a chance for some of us and for probably all of us throughout our walk with God that we think we're doing the word in a religious kind of way, although we wouldn't use that word, but we're actually deceiving ourselves. This is a strange concept. I want to talk about three ways for us to kind of understand the good and the bad religion as presented in these two verses. And we're going to look at religion in three terms, the doing of the word. Um, first, James is going to give us a test for our inward religion, our inward work that comes from the word. And, and that will be talked about, as James says, you're deceiving your heart. Then James is going to point us towards a pure and undefiled outward religion, as he talks about orphans and widows and boxes that we send across the world to care for those in need. And then James is going to talk about an upward religion. What does any of this have to do with that God that we all say we believe in? So as we go through this, we're going to look at it in three ways, starting with a surprising measurement of our inward religion. James says, you know, you think you're doing the word, but you're deceiving yourself because you're not bridling your tongue. This is a, a strange moment for us to pause. Isn't there a better measurement for the way that we do the work in our life to be people who follow the word of God with conviction unto his glory and our satisfaction besides our tongue? Isn't, can't we just find some like behavioral things that kind of show that we're, we're walking in the word? And, and the answer to that is yes, but that's not what James answers. James says this morning, for those of us that really want to be free from the deception that because you come to church, listen to the sermon, download the podcast, know the memory verse, buy the books, you're not necessarily doing what you think. He says, before we talk about behavior, let's talk about your mouth. Why does he go there? Well, one, that's something hopefully all of us relate to. There's not one of us that can't read the, the book of James and all of its warnings about the way that our mouth is a measurement of our health and say, oh, that's a little convicting. So that's a good starting point. I hope we're all listening that James says part of the deception of religious people sometimes is found in their words. To answer this question, as we've done through much of the book of James, it's helpful to remember that Sermon on the Mount overlap. Remember, one of the, the ways that we found a blessing in studying the book of James is that we just finished our summer on the mount. And James is actually overlaying this measurement for your inward religion with something that Jesus taught. So let me share with you from uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. 
He says there is actually an outward appearance of good that has an inward deadness or an inward evil. James, or Jesus now says in Matthew 7, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. This is the part of the warning that we need to listen to. He says, here's how you'll know them, by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So Jesus says exactly what we're getting at this morning. A lot of us look good on the outside, look good on the resume of religion, but inwardly, our hearts do not match our action. And what Jesus says is, measure the fruit. If you really want to know what kind of tree you've got growing in your backyard, wait for it to blossom its fruit. If it's an apple, it's an apple tree. If it's a peach, it's a peach tree. If it's thorns, it's no good. In the same way, Jesus says, measure the fruit. He goes on to say, in the warning in Matthew 7, that if you don't get this right, there's useless religion. Matthew chapter seven, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father in heaven. So there's James and Jesus overlaying each other, fitting like a puzzle piece to help us understand. Now, measure the fruit to find which kind of believer that you are. And here's why this is so important. The Sermon on the Mount and all the teachings about this good tree and bad tree will flow into a very important scene that Jesus interacts with religious people. And in his interactions with religious people, he's going to give them the example of the tree again. Matthew chapter 12, so a couple chapters later in the ministry of Jesus, he has one of those interactions with religious people who say they're doing the work but are deceived, and they're arguing with Jesus about the validity of his work. And their main challenge with Jesus is that he's doing a bunch of work on the Sabbath. So it, the, the chapter begins with him and his disciples on the Sabbath day, picking up grain that was left from a harvest for poor people. They were hungry. They must have qualified as poor. So they start eating. And religious people who would say they're doing the word say to Jesus, how on earth can you justify what you're doing on the Sabbath? And Jesus continues to give them reason for their religion to be challenged by his work. He goes on to heal a withered hand. They challenge him again. He then goes on to cast out demon from a boy. And then in Matthew chapter 12, we have the reintroduction of the tree. As he's talking to his religious critics, he's going to use the tree example. They are calling him someone that is actually working for the devil by casting out demons. They're blaspheming his name and they're arguing with him to which he says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, make the tree good and its fruit good or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad for a tree is known by its fruit. Great. So we can measure the, the, the way that you're taking the word by the fruit of your life. And what is the fruit? The very next verse, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil Say anything good, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. What Jesus is saying is measure it by the fruit, and I can tell you your fruit by your words against me. As you argue with me, as you doubt me, as you say that I'm not who I say I am, as you continually put your religion above my work, I can tell you're a bad tree by your words. And this is what James is getting at for all of us. The unbridled tongue is telling something about not only our words, but our heart. 
The words that you speak are an overflow of your heart. And this is why this is so important. You continue to read Matthew 12, the very next verse, Matthew 12, verse 35. A good man of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. An evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. As we consider bridling our tongue, oftentimes you think of that as a, a, a horizontal. Once again, it's like, okay, we've got to speak kindly to each other, which we do. We have to not gossip. We have to not slander. We have to not be divisive, which is all true. But remember the lesson from last week. Being quick to listen and slow to speak is so valuable in interpersonal relationships, but it has to start with God. The whole command that James is giving these believers that have been scattered abroad to find joy, if you're lacking joy, go to God. If you're going through temptation, don't blame God. And in all of the ways that God will speak to you and give you the wisdom that you need and give you the power to overcome, your role is to listen. Your role is to allow God's word to now govern your heart. Think about the definition that we're working with again with bridle. Look what it says. The headgear with which an animal is governed. Govern your words means that your heart is also governed by the treasure that exists and overflows from it. Your treasure governs your life. The depths of your heart flow the words out of your mouth and represent what you live for, what you care about, and what's really important to you. And when James says bridle your mouth or bridle your tongue, what he's saying in the beginning of all of this is to allow the word of God to be implanted into your hearts. So much so that your words are representative of a bridled life. Remember what it says in James chapter one, the verse we looked at last week, verse 21. Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with all meekness the imparted word which is able to save your soul. Allow the word of God to be implanted into your heart in such a way that it governs you. It has bridled your life. What the word says is a narrow gate to the truth and the life and the way that God has called you to, and your words begin where your heart flows. This is something that all of us are challenged by, to allow the word to be something that we listen to and then it governs our life. And you'll know by the way that you hold your tongue to listen to God. And then by the way that your words are words filled with the hope and the faith and the love that you have in God for others, or if this has not happened, coming out of your heart, flowing through your mouth, will be all the other things that you treasure. Remember last week, Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus gives that lesson of the good listener. He says there are so many things that are inside of the soil of your life or your heart that keep you from bearing the fruit. It goes over your head because you don't understand. There's, there's riches that you care more about the things of this world than the things of the kingdom. There's all sorts of things that will choke out the joy when persecution comes. And what James is saying is as you bridle your words and listen to God, it penetrates the depths of your heart 
so that your life is bridled by the word. This is all an extension of last week. To be bridled, we have to listen. And then we have to do the will. What is God saying to do in the circumstances of your life? And the deception comes when we're listening, but we're not bridled. When we hear the sermon and we hear all of the things about God, but it doesn't change the direction of our life. It is more than just the way we speak. James goes on to say in James chapter 3, verse 2, For when we stumble in many things, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Indeed, when you put in, uh, bits in horses' mouths, they may obey us and we turn their whole body. You don't bridle a horse just for the mouth. You bridle the horse for the whole horse. And when James says you're unbridled, he's saying you have not given your life by the implanted word of God in your hearts fully over to God. You're hearing, but you're not doing what God says. Going through the motions, going through the routine, going through all of the listening, but it doesn't match you following now as a horse would follow the bridle. I, I'm always grateful for the way I get these lessons just in everyday life. And once again, I have to share a story of my children, so bear with me. I feel like all of these stories are like using a credit card. It's easy to, to, to do now, and then I'll probably pay for it later. <laughs> I was doing a bedtime routine with my kids, and it was very similar to this. This is what I'm thinking about, telling my kids to be good listeners and ultimately listen to God. What does he want for your life? And love God so you can love others. And it's like the parable of the sower. I can see some are getting it and some aren't. And so, you know, the teacher that's trying to engage that child that's distracted, I called on one of my kids to just pray for our night, to pray for God to just give us the word implanted so that it would grow and we would do it. And it's like, okay, and then pray for, you know, whatever the Lord puts on your heart before we go to bed. And the daughter that I called upon was like, got it. And so we all close our eyes and she goes, Dear Lord, thank you for this food. Bless it to our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. And I was like, oh, you're just totally going through the routine of prayer. You're praying for a meal that's not here. And your default prayer, obviously, is praying for food, which is great. Oftentimes, your words will be shaped by your hunger. I get that as well. But as I'm Getting ready to rebuke her, I realized that what I see in her, the Lord is showing something in me. And how often do I do the same thing? The Lord says, here's what I want you to do with the word. Here's how I want the word to be in your heart so that you hear my voice, so that you do my will. And I'm like, got it. I'm going to do the opposite. Got it. Heard the message. And now life starts when the church ends. And all of us have a challenge with that because what James is saying to us this morning, if you do that, if you sit in church but it doesn't change your life, if it doesn't bridle your heart, bridle your words, bridle your walk, this is all a waste of time. There, there's no value intrinsically in listening to a sermon and not allowing the word of God to be implanted. 
James says, you're deceiving yourselves if you think that this is what will change your life. What changes your life is when the word impacts your heart so richly that you do what God tells you to do, and then you get to get this verse that says, and anyone who continues in his word will be blessed. It's a promise. Jesus says, I want you to give you life, life more abundant. Like, got it. You want to give me life in heaven, and now my life will be flatlined. He's like, no, I want to give you life now. Well, we're just happy to not have it till then. I want to give you joy. Got it. I'll have joy in heaven. And for now, I'm just going to grit my teeth until I get there. No, I want you to have joy through trials. One of my favorite living parables of this is actually seen in my favorite movie. Sorry if you've heard me share this before because I know I have at some, at some point. But one of my favorite movies is Forrest Gump. I see a lot of myself in him. I hope because he, I, I believe he was such a picture of a life that is lived so simply upon the wisdom of listening. Next time you watch the movie, if you do, think about all the times he says, well, my mama always said. And so much of his life was shaped by the wisdom that was given to him. And it wasn't just his mom that he listened to. In fact, the person that he listened to the most was the person that he loved the most. And this is an imperfect parable because uh, the person he loved the most was a fallen woman of this world named Jenny. If you've seen the movie, you know that everything oriented around Jenny. And there was one moment when he saw her and he told her, hey, I'm going to Vietnam. And, And Jenny, in her own kind of season of life, just had one bit of wisdom. She said, if you get into any trouble, I want you to run. And he took the word and it landed into his heart. And not long after, he got into trouble. And the air raid overhead started falling down on him and all the men that he was serving with. And it was like danger, disaster, scatter. Nobody knew what to do. People are dying. Bullets are flying. And the word came out. And it governed his life. And he began to run. And as he was running, he started picking up people. It's kind of a picture of just the gospel. It's like, I'll tell you what to do. And when you see people who need help, just help them. And he starts picking up everybody and throwing them down. His best friend, Bubba, he throws him down and he goes back for his lieutenant and he picks him up and he's like, leave me here. And he's like, nope, gotta take, I got to save you. He drops him down. It was such an amazing moment of his life that he won the Medal of Honor. What a moment to win the highest honor that our country can give to someone who serves. And then in a moment that re- represents what is supposed to happen as we listen and we do and we're blessed and we're saved. He sees Jenny after he's got the medal. He actually has the medal on her on, and he says, Jenny, I've got to give you this medal. And she's like, I can't take that. That's yours. You earned it. And then he says one of my favorite lines, and I always look at this as something that we would simply say to God. He says, I got it just by doing what you told me to do. It's not my medal. You told me what to do, and I did it. And it saved my life, and it blessed others. And it brought joy and honor, and it all belongs to you. Now, what we're being called to is not to our moms or the love of our life, but a relationship with the word of God representing God himself that is so rich that we live a simple life of doing it. 
everything that the word promises. Call, call to joy and peace and faith and hope and love and a life and a life more abundant as we receive those things. We come at our worship services and when the tithe is passed and when we're sitting around the table and eating food and we say, God, this is all yours. I only got it by doing what you told me to do. That is the inward religion bridled by the word of God that is blessed, has the power to save your soul and bring joy to every circumstance of your life. And yet, even in our doing, we can have an outward expression that doesn't match the inward truth. And so James is gonna offer some corrective religion now. The useless religion is when we do, but we never cash it in. Now the pure religion, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and keep oneself unspotted from the world. I've already referenced how James and Jesus are almost teaching back and forth this morning with the Sermon on the Mount and the inward religion and the outward expression. And as, as Jesus continues to just collide with religious people who, by their words, would, would, would plot against him, he often references back to a moment in the story of God where there was a very similar time where God's people were not hearing God's voice. And that's why Jesus often references the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah lived in a time when there was lots of religiosity, there was lots of doing, but with that, lots of deception because it, it didn't have any impact on their relationship with God. In Isaiah chapter one, as you read it, you can't help but hear the call of James to pure religion. Isaiah chapter one, verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, purify the relationship that you have with God. Put away the evil of your doing from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Here is the outward expression that Isaiah was called to bring to the people of God then, that Jesus came to cleanse the people of God in his ministry, and that now we see in our time a desire to see. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Is the word of God so rich in your heart, so bridled of your life, that you have an expression of the heart of God to the world that you live in? And if you're like me, the answer is often no. <laughs> I do not do this well, I do not do this perfectly. And it's worth to continue to read because even as Isaiah the prophet was being raised up, he himself had to go through this transformative shift towards the outward expression being cleansed, not just the inward truth. And in Isaiah chapter six, we get this famous scene where Isaiah has such a real interaction with the living God, the way that we desire to have with the living word of God, that he was undone. It says that he saw a vision of the Lord that filled the temple. It could not contain him and that there were heavenly beings just worshiping him. And as that becomes implanted in him, that is so rich, look what he discovers of himself. He says in response to this in chapter six, so I said, woe is me for I am undone. 
because I am a man of unclean lips. My mouth is not representative of a pure heart before God. And I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. I can't help but think of the time that we live in. A people of unclean lips, representative of hearts that are unbridled by the word of God. And we live in a time where our words get thrown out like daggers into the warfare of our world. And the world we live in is full of unclean lips because the hearts have not been purified. And people call evil good and good evil. And people suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And both believers and non look to find righteousness through anger. And Isaiah gives us a picture of the first step in becoming a messenger of the outward expression is to have a cleansing of our own lips. A cleansing of the treasures of our own hearts so that out of our hearts would flow the implanted word of God and not the defiled word of man. And by God's grace, we see a picture of something that he'll offer all of us this morning. One of the heavenly beings comes and cleanses the lips, tongues of fire, cleansing the lips of Isaiah. He's made new, he's washed clean. And in verse eight, after he's been cleansed, it says, I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And then he said, here am I, send me. One of the reasons none of you raised your hand You do not want to be associated with the religious because too often there is an outward work that is not representative of an inward transformation. And we bring not words of peace and a message of comfort and a desire by our kindness to bring people through repentance to the heart of God, but our desire by man's wrath to bring righteousness. But we need ourselves to be cleansed so that we can go to orphans and widows to offer mercy, to offer justice, to be the ambassadors of God that we're called to be by the implanting of his word in our heart. And I find it interesting as God hears the willingness of Isaiah to go, he sends him with a message. And it's a message that we should all listen to because it seems to be a pattern that happens in the people of God where they become so religious that they can't actually hear the voice of God through all of the chaos of their sacrifices. This is what, Je- or this is what the Lord says to Isaiah as the message that he'll bring. Isaiah chapter six, verse nine, he said, go and tell the people, you keep on hearing, but you don't understand. Keep on seeing, but you do not perceive. And this is why we see the, the language of Isaiah coming up in the message of Jesus as he's telling the religious people of his day, you guys hear it, but you don't get it. You guys see it, but you're blind to the reality that the visible image of the invisible God is right before you and you're arguing with him. The visible image of the living God is given to you through the word of God and you argue with it. Or you turn your back to it. Or you close your ears to it. And you check off the list that you've listened to it because of a sermon, but you don't actually allow it to change your life. And so again, we find comfort in the words of Jesus as Jesus cleanses the motivation of our hearts. 
not to simply be religious people, but to hear the voice of God. To have a relationship behind your work. One of the ways that we need to be cleansed is found in, again, religious arguments that Jesus always found himself in. If you find yourself in the midst of a religious argument, maybe you're on the right track. In Luke chapter 15, we get a picture of the scribes and the Pharisees coming to Jesus and questioning who he was showing an outward expression of love to. Tax collectors and sinners, and this guy thinks he's the Messiah? And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells those beautiful parables to express the heart of God towards broken people. The parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and ultimately the lost son. And in all of those, Jesus says, don't you understand the joy that comes with finding things? Don't you understand the joy that God wants to give to you when you take part in the shepherd's heart to go beyond the religious and to find the unrighteous? In Matthew chapter 9, we get another way that Jesus responds in a similar scene. He's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, righteous people in their view that are deceived because their works don't line up with their heart, wonder about the outward expression of love that Jesus is showing the marginalized. And for this account of the story, Jesus says this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And aren't we glad that the call is not for those of you who are totally qualified in your obedience to the law, are totally qualified in your version of religion. But when the implanted word of God is the foundation of everything you believe, you understand that you are called to know the savior, the shepherd, and the cleanser of your soul. He didn't, call, he didn't come to call the righteous, but the unrighteous. Allow me to give some words of encouragement as to what happens when our experience with God becomes living. So often, the church experience, why non-believers would answer the same question that I posed this morning the same way that you did. Are you religious? Heaven forbid. No way. I don't want to be religious. Uh, that's for uh, people that, you know, are bummed out. They're in this, like, weird spiritual straitjacket, can't do anything fun. And, you know, they go to church, and they can't do anything, and they just, I would never be religious. And if that's all religion is, they're right. But, you know, something amazing happens when we have a living relationship when we have a living outward expression and when we actually get to express the heart of God to those who God loves most, we experience joy. When we comfort with God's comfort, we ourselves get comfort. And in the holistic view of James chapter one, let's remember that initial thread that weaves everything together. To the churches scattered abroad, to the believer that life has become very difficult for. To those who are going through a storm, there is joy in the midst of a trial. 
If you don't see it, ask God for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom to, so you can know the lesson and you can know the discipline and you can know the encouragement that comes on the other side of the trial. And now, here's another invitation to see the joy. Sometimes we get so self-focused on our picture of our religious activity that we forget that the real joy is when we start loving one another. And you know what happens when you visit orphans and widows? You realize that if they can have joy, so can you. You realize that when you come to bring the word of faith, hope, and love, and they receive it gladly because their heart is just, just rich soil, and they, they receive it with tears of joy, and they receive it with worship, and they receive it with just gratitude in their lips, you, you leave there thinking, if they can be joyful, why can't we? I think part of the reasons we're not joyful is that we think about our own life circumstances so much that we forget that God's goodness is everywhere even when we don't see it in our own lives. Here's some wisdom to share this with you. Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse two. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting for death is the destiny of everyone and the living should take it to heart. If they can be joyful, so can I. If they can be comforted in their mourning, so can I. I had the privilege to stand on this stage yesterday to do a funeral and two days ago to visit a woman who had just lost a child. And there's something about the power of the word of God when it is received with joy that will change your life. There is no greater worship service than the funeral. There's no greater time for people to be begging for the truth of God, for the word of God to be real to them. And, and there's no there's more willing heart for someone that says, I just need wisdom because I have no idea what to do when I mourn my daughter. And you know, I, I left both of those places with tears of thanksgiving in my own life. Thank you, God, that there is hope in the midst of a funeral. Thank you, God, that there is comfort in the midst of death. You are called to have uncircumstantial joy. And if you don't have it, ask God for wisdom. And as you're waiting, visit the needy. Spend time with the broken. And you'll also receive this bit of truth, which all of us should just cling to whenever we think about the outward expression and why we don't cash it in more often. Proverbs chapter 11 says this, the generous soul will be made rich and he who waters will also be watered himself. You go to be a blessing and what always happens is you, you leave more full than how you came. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, to be a soul winner is the happiest thing in the world, and with every soul you bring to Jesus Christ, you seem to get a new heaven here upon earth. The more that we can share Christ with each other, the more that we can bring people into the kingdom, the more we get to experience where heaven and earth touch the more we get to experience the joy that is not rooted in this world, but it is rooted in eternity. And so we end with a hopeful promise, the test of the inward religion, the test of the outward religion, and now the one that cuts all of the, the useless religion from the religion of worth, the upward call, the upward religion. 
Look what James says. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father. Now contrast that with verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religion and doesn't bridle his own tongue, deceives his own heart. There are two religions in these two verses. And in your experience of a desire to know God, there are two religions. In the Sermon on the Mount, it's called the broad and the narrow. Here it's called what you think and what God knows. Before your own mind, your own thoughts, your own heart, or before God himself. And it is only the religion that exists before God that has any worth at all. And of course, there's ways to visit orphans and widows and care about the social justice of our world. But when you remove a desire for the upward relationship with the heavenly father, there is no value. There is no worth. It will fade away. It will have no lasting value. It will be building your religion on sand. And yet, there is a religion of value before God. And one of the ways that this is measured is in this call to be unspotted from the world. So we pick up the words of Isaiah as we point towards a practical application of this. After Isaiah talks about the style of religion that God calls his people to, not sacrifice, but mercy, he then says in verse 16, come now and let us reason together. This is on behalf of God. Let's talk about it. Come listen to my words. Listen to my prophet. Come reason with me. Tell me where you have doubts and I'll give you my wisdom. Tell me where you need truth and I'll give you my word. And where you have gone astray, like we all have, where your religion has become something that is less than honoring and glorifying to the word of God and the will of God, he says this, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. A preview of the gospel that we see in its fullness in the power of the cross. Wherever we've gone astray, where the word has landed on rocky soil, where our outward expression has been for the praise of man and not the glory of God, there is an answer to cleanse us from the spotty world that we live in. Isaiah told the people that you can be cleansed to be made brand new, white as wool. Here's what we know that to look like today. In Romans chapter 10, it says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, your words and your hearts will be fully aligned in this concept that Jesus is Lord. And that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise. You aren't in a, you're in a dead and a deceptive religion, but there's a way out. You've been deceived by empty words or empty works, but here's the gospel on the ground today. Although you've been spotted by the self-righteous world that we live in, he who knew no sin, unspotted in everything that he did, became sin. He became the sacrifice. He became the mercy and the grace on display for orphans so that we could become given the right to be called children of God. You say that with your words because you believe it in your heart.
And today we get to do something so amazing because it's been about a year and a half since we've done this as one big body of believers. But this upward call to have a religion that exists before God and God alone, not a religion that exists before a pulpit or a church or a ministry team or all of the ways that we may deceive ourselves because we think we're doing the work, a religion that exists before God and God alone. We get to remember how that happens by taking communion today as a church family. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that we now today have an opportunity to hold in our hands the invitation to have the word of God, the promises of God, the soul saving power of God represented in the only way that it's possible. This is his body given for you. This is his blood shed for you. Anyone who believes in him as Lord, that he could bridle your life and point you in the way that you should go so you can have life and life more abundant now and stop going through the motions. You experience salvation. And for all of us who are reminded so often that we're called to keep ourselves unspotted and yet this world and all of its snares and temptations fills us up with the dust of the fallen nature. Today we hold it once again and we say, cleanse us from our inside heart to our outward expression, to the upward call that we have to live before you and you alone. So as those elements are being passed out, if you're a believer, may the word of God fall on rich soil that you would hear his voice in new and fresh ways, that you would see what he sees, the people that he's called you to be an ambassador for, and that you would not be deceived that somehow coming to church this morning has anything to do with the living God and his love for you and his desire to be your father. If you're someone that finds yourself here not loving religion, well, we hope that you would find that there is something that looks a little bit different than maybe what you're expecting. A religion that is pure, it's cleansed from all of the stereotypical nonsense. A religion that comes from a God who loves you, a God who made you, a God who wants to be the power of salvation in your life. And if you want to accept that free gift today, you just take those elements with us. Call upon his name, believe in his heart that he rose from the grave and conquered your sin, took away the sting of death and gives you eternal life.